Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Amen. Hey, welcome to Capital Church. I have the opportunity, which I'm excited about, to bring the word to us this morning. I want to thank Dr. Stan, how many enjoyed him last week with that timely message in word on the integrity of faith. How many actually did something with it this last week? Like you, you really examined your life. Uh, you, you check to see, okay, are there any areas in my life that maybe have been, been hurt or broke or fractured in some way? It makes sense. I was thinking about it. It makes sense. We do with our cars. We take our cars to uh, the mechanics if there's a problem. And the idea is for the mechanic to fix the problem so it doesn't compound more and more issues. The problem is if we ignore it, it can get worse. And it can even go beyond just being worse. It can get dangerous. And it can hurt people. Isn't it true with our lives? How many know that our lives can be broken? We can get hurt. We have weak spots. There can be fractures in our armor. How many know that life sometimes is a warfare too? And this is, I think, the point that Dr. Stan was making. Uh, And so if we don't take the time to examine our faith, examine our, come on, go through Ephesians 6. As Paul says, this is the armor that you're to put on every day. Examine that. What's, what's the peace like in your life? Where, where's the word of God been in your life? The point is all of us have to be uh, ready and willing to allow honesty to come to our hearts. And we have to present to the Holy Spirit. And here's the, here's the fun thing about that. He already knows. He just kind of waits for us to catch up, right? Like, oh, now you're realizing, okay, now I can, I can work with you. Because the, the, the harsh reality is that it seems like life is generous with uh, hardships. Life can be generous with dishing out impossibilities. And if we're not careful, we can allow our hearts and minds to think that impossibilities equate to, to failure. And that failure somehow is final. It can, it can mess with us a little bit. That's why I love the role of scripture. And that's why I love the opportunity that I get to speak over the next few moments. I want to talk from Scripture and encourage us as the Bible gives witness to the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. He's faithful. Like not just to characters in Scripture, but he's faithful to your story. He's faithful to every person that's sitting here and everyone that's viewing online at home. God is faithful. Irregardless of the year, God is He's working. He's working out uh, his perfect plan for all of our lives. What seems to be the case, and this is going to be a big idea, is not always the case. This is going to be a big thought here. What seems to be the case is not always the case. I think we might do it. Uh, Pastor Trace and I talked. We might go into a mini-series starting today, just the month of November. And we talked about calling it shadow work. So if, if you want a title for not just your message, but just for this month, just, just write down shadow work. Shadow work is the idea that God is always at work, that heaven is active all the time, even though we might not see it or be aware. That the Bible reveals God works in ordinary, unlikely, and overlooked people, places, and things. Like God works in areas that you're not even aware of that are invisible to you. 
But just because it's invisible to you doesn't mean that the reality of God is not at play. He is orchestrating. He is the divine orchestrator of all things. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Pastor Tracy mentioned already Psalms 46 verse 10 uh, it, it reads, be still and know that I am God. I think that's probably one of the hardest uh, commandments that we, we live out is learning to be still and knowing that God is, God is working. He's in the midst of your story. He surrounds you and I today. Um, he, is, he is for us. And the first story I want to take us to, I'm going to take us to a story in Genesis chapter 15. One that, if you've been in church a long time, you're, you're aware of, but I want to f- prove a few points on how God works in the invisible areas of our life. And when you look at Genesis chapter 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, all the way to 22, it focuses on a couple, a patriarch, Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And it's God who comes to Abraham in chapter 15, and he makes this covenant with Abraham who has no children. He and Sarah have no children. There's no offspring. And it's something that is a place of pain for this couple uh, because it desired to carry on their name, to carry on the legacy, but also within that culture, it's something of shame to go without having children. And God comes to Abraham and speaks the words of covenant to him read in the 15th chapter says, you come out of your tent, look to the stars, begin to count them. The descendants and the generations going to come out of you are going to outnumber the stars in heaven. He, he holds that word close. He holds it real close. Then God appears to him again. And in Genesis chapter 17, he comes to Abraham and Sarah. They're past the age of bearing children. Uh, they're to the place where they probably feel like uh, all seems Final, But in Genesis chapter 17, verse 15 and 19, it says, And God said to Abraham, As for your wife Sarai, you shall not call her Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. He then goes on to say, And from her shall become nations, kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed, and he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? So Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child. And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, Sarah shall be the uh, but your wife Sarah shall bear a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish, he's repeating himself again. I'm establishing my covenant with you, with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. It's just like God, I think, when I read through this, to wait for the perfect time. But when you think about Sarah and you think about Abraham, what was a perfect time to, to God didn't feel like a perfect time to them. Have you ever had that? Where you might, it's, it's like, okay, God's saying something to you, but it doesn't feel like either that's gonna happen or that's the timing of God. And it's here that God asked the question to this couple, is anything too difficult for me? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, this is in chapter 18 now, he says, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. 
I think oftentimes it's difficult to answer that question, especially when circumstances suggest otherwise. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Uh, we see that when you look at the life of Abraham, he wasn't born with like this superhuman faith, right? He just didn't come out of the womb and just, he was just believing everything. He had to learn and grow in this faith. If you remember, he was asked to come out of a land that he was uh, native to, and he was asked to move from that land to a foreign land. That took faith. He was asked to step on new grounds and where his soles of the feet touch, he is to claim that. That takes some faith. Uh, he was asked to be circumcised at 99 years old. Hello. That takes some faith. Uh, he was then told at 99, 100, his wife 90, that they would have a son together. And out of Sarah, nations of the world would be birthed. That takes some faith. Like, what's God asked you today? It, it's, it shows that every time that he obeys the voice of God, he grows that much more in his faith. And here he is. Uh, all They were advanced in years. The vision and their hope for having a son was faded. Even a man such as the faith like Abraham, he was probably losing a little bit his grip on this promise, starting to weaken. And we see that God does what he does. He moves out of the shadows from the invisible to the visible, and he speaks to Abraham. Their response is, and this is oftentimes uh, when you know that God's probably speaking to you, if it causes you to laugh, they laugh. Now, Sarah laughed. She got in trouble. Abraham laughed. He didn't. So I want to figure that out later on, say, what's, what's going on with that? They both laughed, okay? And I think that's just because how ridiculous it seemed to them, but still, God was at work. And we see that Isaac is born. The promise continued. All seemed final. And this is the point I want you to write down for this first story. And that's that every promise of God has an appointed time. Every promise of God has a point in time. From the biblical text to the promise that God has spoken over your life, it has an appointed time. It might not feel like the perfect time to you. It might seem like something is delayed, but the one thing we know scripture proves it God is perfect in his timing, in his way that he ministers. The next story I want to just kind of just familiarize ourselves with is in the book of Kings. Is it all right that we go a little Old Testament this morning? I don't know. I felt like November 1st, 2020 just needs some Old Testament. So here we are. We have Abraham and we have Sarah. And the promise is this, that the promise is coming. It's at a point in time. And then you move to this, this next character. It's Elijah, the Tishbite of Gilead. Come on, somebody. Like, where are those introductions anymore? What's your name? My name's Shane. That's it? Yeah. Shane, like Shane the Grove of Boise. It doesn't quite sound like Elijah, the Tishbite of Gilead. I mean, that's, that's an introduction. But here is Elijah, and I can't do this for you, but you have to. It is so, so adventurous. It's intriguing. It will just leave you at the edge of your seat if you read your Bible. If you read First Kings 17, 18, 19, and 20, we don't have the time to do it today. So you're gonna tr- you have to trust my paraphrase, but just don't 
Trust me fully. Go to the Word yourself and check it out. But this is Elijah. He comes to the nation, the, the leader, the king of Israel at this time by the name of Ahab. Ahab is married to a pretty awful woman by the name of Jezebel, as, re, as, as history reveals. Uh, they would not be considered righteous king and queen. They'd be considered wicked. Uh, they were opposed to the things of God. And so as God does, he collaborates with you and I. He uses Elijah to go to Ahab to deliver this word. And the word is that there is a drought coming. There is a famine coming. There's not going to be any dew or any rain that's going to drop until God says otherwise. And then he takes off. He runs away. And what you see in 1 Kings 17 is you see a severe, severe drought and famine. You see that their response, both Ahab and Jezebel's response to this word that was delivered to them was to set out and kill the prophets of God. And so what does Elijah do? Elijah, he follows the direction of God. And God says, you're going to go to this particular creek, this brook. Uh, it's called Kareth. You're going to go to Kareth and there you're going to find enough water to get you through this season. And then God does something else. He supplies food for Elijah by sending ravens. Ravens come twice a day and they deliver food to Elijah. I mean, this is before like Uber, uh, Uber Eats. Like this is like, what? Like, in, in, the Bible is always ahead of its time. Like, you know, I'm waiting for Amazon with the drones to drop stuff off at your door. That was already God's idea a long time ago. Maybe not. It was ravens. Ravens came and they, they delivered food to Elijah. It says he was able to eat and drink. He was hidden. Because while this is happening, they're looking all over the nation for this man. How dare he bring this type of uh, judgment on a nation? Well, it says that the brook dries up. And as the brook dries up, then God directs him to the house of a widow. And at the house of the widow, it reads that this, this woman had enough meal, enough flour, and enough oil to prepare a last meal. And what was about to happen, she expected that she was just going to die of starvation, her and her son. So here you have uh, a prophet who is on the run, who is in hiding, who somehow God is still bringing water to him from a creek and feeding him with ravens as the, the means of delivery. The creek dries up. That God then directs him to the home of the widow. As he goes to the widow's home, he says to her, which is pretty audacious, uh, he knows that she has not a whole lot. And he says to her, make me a meal. Bake me bread. And she explains that this is what she has. It's her last. The plan is she's going to eat it and she's going to die. Where's Elijah? Elijah is in a home of a hopeless woman who feels like she's done all that she can do and she's on her very, very last. But it's not just her. It's also the fact that she has to care for her son too. But both of them are hopeless. And God sends Elijah not only to Ahab, but through the course of these unconventional ways, he sends him to this house of the woman to bring encouragement to her. And he says this in... Uh, in, uh, where are we at? Verse 14. He says, the flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the Lord sends rain on the surface 
of the land. So she takes that as a word from the Lord. And instead of baking the meal for herself, she bakes it for this prophet. And then to her amazement, when the bread is done, she looks and there's still flour in the jar and there's oil or there's flour in the pot and there's oil in the jar. And it go, and you can read it yourself. It continues through her time of living in this drought. God takes care of her. But then when things, you know, they're, they're bad, they get good, and now they get worse. Then it says her son gets ill and dies. Now, I don't know what 2020, and this isn't a downplay, was to, to you. It's been a, a pretty interesting year. But so is 800 B.C., Like, it, it's a pretty nasty drought. Nothing is growing. People are dying. I've, I've been in my life to where I've had very little, but never to the point where this widow was. And I've never been a prophet on the run, fearing for my life. So I would say 800 B.C., if that's what it was, I would say that's a pretty crazy year. The point here is, when you look at the example of what God is doing in the life of Elijah, with Abraham and with Sarah, you see that the promise of God always has an appointed timing. Here, you see that the provision of God oftentimes comes in unconventional ways. So for you, the provision of God often comes in unconventional ways. It came from ravens. It came from a flower jar and oil that didn't run out. Then we see, not only that, we see that the, the child in the home, he gets sick. It says he's so severely sick that the air escapes him and he's dead. And Elijah's still in the home of the widow. And if you read it, it is, it's a crazy story. What does he do? He cries out to God and then he puts the boy on a bed, and then he lays on the child three times while crying out to God. And what happens? Life comes back to the child. Never underestimate the unconventional ways in which God delivers his provision. And this is what I love. If you read the last part of chapter 17, verse 24, this, listen to the testimony of this woman. She writes, then the woman says this to Elijah. Now I know you are a man of God and the Lord's word from your mouth is true. What we see is what started as a hopeless situation has turned into a household of salvation. She didn't die. It wasn't her last meal. She was able to make more and more and more and more and more and God had favor on her. Her son, it wasn't the end story. But what it seemed like, hear me now, it seemed like Abraham and Sarah weren't going to have a kid. They were past the time. It seemed like Elijah was going to die on the run, but God provided. It seemed like this widow lady was going to serve her last meal and her and her son were going to die of starvation. But just because it seemed like that doesn't mean that was the reality I don't know, I wonder in our life, in your life, what seems to be isn't always the case when you're looking from heaven's perspective. Why are we so excited about 
teaching on this over the next month is because I think if we're not careful, we can limit our view of life and our scope and look through the wrong lens, the temporal lens, the lens that says, if I see it, if it's in front of me, then that's reality. If I don't see it, then it must not be true. And we couldn't get further from biblical truth with that mindset. There's a lot of things that you don't see that God is doing. He's preparing food for you. He's supplying ways for your life, for your story, for your dreams, for your prayers that are unconventional. And the, the God we serve has perfect timing. Now, the story doesn't end here. There's some time that goes by. That's why you got to read all of those, those chapters, 17, 18, 19, and 20 of Elijah and let it encourage you. Now he goes back. He makes his way back to kind of out of hiding. He's going to confront Ahab. And on the way, he meets an old friend, Obadiah. Obadiah says, what are you doing? They, they've looked. There's not a nation in a country that has not been turned upside down looking for you. I mean, they're going to kill you. And you know what Obadiah says? He's like, you know what I've done? He goes, this, this king and his wife, they've, they put out a hit on prophets. He goes, you know what I've done? I've taken a hundred of Israel's prophets, and I've had to hide them in two caves, 50 in one, 50 in the other. And I've been doing the work of delivering food and water and resources to them, keeping them alive. And now, because Elijah says, you need to go tell your, tell your Lord that uh, I'm out to meet him. He's like, I'm not going to talk to Ahab. Ahab's going to kill me. And he says, do it. Basically, I promise I'll talk to him. Ahab then, or Elijah falls through with it. He confronts Ahab. And Ahab says, there you are, destroyer of Israel. What's he doing? This was a horrible drought. People were dying. And I love what the man of God does. He says, round up all your prophets of Baal, 450 of them, and we're going to have a showdown. And there's a showdown that takes place. There's uh, two altars that are, that are made. And you see the altars are made to those that are worshiping Baal and idolatry. These 450 prophets were doing everything they could, could do to muster up the response from their gods to do something. Elijah says, hey, this is what I want you to do. He prepares the altar. Uh, he puts the wood on the altar. He puts the sacrifice on the altar. He then asks for water to be on the altar. So it drenches the altar. And then a fire from heaven comes and consumes the altar. Uh, and then people believe. It was spectacular. Like crazy, crazy. And then the people turn back to God and they deal with the 450 prophets. This is Old Testament. Like they're dead. They, they, they kill them. And then Elijah, he then goes and he begins to uh, speak to, to Ahab. And he says to Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 18, he says, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and he looked at, and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again, seven times he did this. So he sends his, his servant, a drought, three and a half years, he sends his servant to go look to see what the skyline reveals. Nothing but blue skies, nothing but just a desolation on the base of Mount Carmel. He comes back. I can imagine being this, this, this young man who was with uh, Elijah 
kind of back and forth, back and forth, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then when you do see something, you come back, yeah, I, I saw a cloud. It's the size of like a, a man's fist. What's he saying? He's like, that's all I've seen. But isn't it amazing, you know what Elijah's response is? And in my mind, it, I picture it different than what I probably can express. But it's pray, 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 pray. This intercessory burden for this nation prays. Finally, after seven times, the young man comes back and says, I see the cloud the size of a man's hand. You know what Elijah did? He probably popped up. He's like, run. And then cue like the music that's in my head that you guys can't hear, but I can hear. (laughs) And he says, tell Ahab to get the chariot ready and make his way to Jezreel. And this is crazy. And I prayed this one time in seventh grade because I might have read this devotional somewhere. It says that the Lord, the Spirit of God, came on Elijah, and he tucked his mantle in his cloak, and he outran the chariot. He made it to Jezreel at the opening of the city before Ahab got there. I prayed that in seventh grade once when I was running the 400. Like, Lord. I might not have. It didn't work. It worked for Elijah. Didn't work for me. I, I got eighth. Um, they had no ribbons to give me. They're out of colors. He outruns a chariot. You're like, what? So what you see in this story is that, man, God works in spectacular ways, but he just doesn't always work in spectacular ways. Sometimes it's just a tiny cloud that means nothing to nobody except for the man of God, the woman of God, who is interceding and praying and watching for any sign. And I I thought, man, I wonder how many clouds I've passed in my life uh, that have not just been clouds, but they've been a sign. They've been something that indicates something is coming. You see that God, he, he works in the sign of this small cloud. Elijah then runs as he, as he gets there, something fascinating happens. And this is how we relate all this oh so well. It says that Ahab tells Jezebel what took place. And Jezebel's response, she didn't even confront Elijah. He, didn't, he wasn't even face to face with her. It says a message got to Elijah. And she said, I swear by my gods that by this time tomorrow, I'll do to you what you did to my prophets. And what does Elijah do? Elijah takes off running again. For a second time, he's now a runaway prophet. Why does that relate to us? Well, I want us to to, to consider this. How many times we can go from good days, strong days, be people of faith, and then we get a report, we get a message, and we just give in to fear, and we run away spiritually. Like, I'm thinking, when I'm reading the story, I'm like, Elijah, what are you doing? You just, it was one on 450, and you won. You were fed by ravens. No one else can have that story. You, you ministered to a household of a woman who was dying. She was rescued and saved. And also her son. You saw a cloud and you saw that tiny cloud and it did manifest into dark skies. And there was a rain that came and broke that drought. It stopped that drought. You outran a chariot. Now you get a message from this lady who says that she's going to kill you by this time tomorrow. And you run away. Not only does he run away, you find in chapter 18 and 19 that he finds himself laying underneath a tree. And you know what he's doing? Now he's not just a runaway prophet. He's a suicidal prophet because he's laying underneath this tree. He says, just take my life. It would be better if you just took my 
life. And this is what I love. You know what God does? He sends an angel. He says the angel touches Elijah. And he says, get up. First, God asks him, where are you at? What are you doing? Did you not just see and experience? Did you forget? Like, did you have a, a, a lapse in, in your brain to forget all that I've taken you? Where are you at? You're in another cave? What are you doing in a cave? You're laying under a tree wanting to die? Get up. Get some food. And this is what I love. He says, get up and eat. So he gets up and eats. He didn't even make the food. Angel of the Lord makes the food. He eats the food. You know what he does again? Lays back down. Like, oh, I got one of those kids. Uh-huh. <laughs> Lays back down. Goes to sleep again. Touched by the, the Lord again. Get up. Eat food. Fed two times. You know what I love about this story? I love the fact that God didn't rebuke him. God just told him to get up and have some food. It reminds me of John 21. Get up and have breakfast. Same thing that Jesus did to Peter, we see God doing to Elijah. They're on the run. They're scared. But God has this beautiful way in just a subtle way of encouraging them with getting them some food and then getting them ready for the next. It says that food and that water energize Elijah for a 40-day journey, 40 days and 40 nights. He goes on this journey. All the while, he's having this struggle in his faith. He's having this, like, what, what have I done? Where, where am I going? God, I'm just desperate for you. Don't you know I'm the only prophet left, the only one that has a zeal and passion for you? Uh, and then I love uh, what, is, what is said, uh, what's experienced and said in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11 and 12. You still with me? He says this, God says this to him after he feeds him and gets him moving again. He says, go and stand out on the mountain of the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and there was a great and strong wind that tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord is not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but the Lord is not in fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. I love this because Elijah experienced the spectacular manifestations of God when fire came from heaven and consumed that altar. And that was a showdown with all of these false prophets. But the point that I'm making with this is, remember the first point, promises have a what? An appointed time. The second point is that the provision of the Lord sometimes comes in unconventional ways. The third point this morning is this, that the power of God can be subtle and silent. I think what he's trying to show Elijah is that it doesn't always have to be in the spectacular. It doesn't have to be in all these crazy divine manifestations, but it can be in a still, small voice that God can move your heart to wonder and God can uh, restore the faith that you felt like you were fracturing in or breaking apart. God can speak in ways, and oftentimes, man, we overlook it because God can use even people sitting next to us or in our story as a voice of encouragement and of life. I think we typically look for what's spectacular, and if it's not spectacular, then we feel like we've missed something. Or if something is silent, if heaven is silent, we feel like it's inactive. Uh, if we can't see it, then, man, it must, not be, it must not be a reality. And I would have to say we couldn't be further from the truth. Now, I love this. Uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, he, he talks about how the kingdom of God is at times, it's subversive, it's, it's under the soil, it's, it's underground. 
uh, in a few things that are pointed out. I want you to think about this. Uh, think about how the kingdom of God is likened, as Dr. Stan mentioned it last week, uh, to a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds, but it outgrows the garden plants and eventually becomes a tree. And not only does it become a tree, but the birds of the air now find their home or their sanctuary in that insignificant little seed. It grows. And that's what Jesus says the kingdom of God is likened to. It seems like it's just uh, a failed dream. It, it seems like it's just the widow's last mill, right? It seems like, you know, when you look at scripture, uh, couldn't Jesus liken us to more than just the salt of the earth, right? Salt is, is subtle. Salt's not like fire from heaven, but the church is likened to salt. It, it does something. Uh, the church is also, the kingdom of God is likened to, to leaven that is put in, what, three measures of meal, and it eventually, what, affects the whole lump. It seems, it seems, it seems, just, just track with me. It seems like it was, uh, and I'm almost done here, a, a, a couple's uh, just uh, failure uh, to produce a child. It seems like it, it was done, that their hope and their dream of having a kid, and not just a kid, but having legacy to extend them was over. It seems like it was the widow's last meal. It seems like it was just a tiny cloud. It seems like all it was was a soft whisper or a silent voice. It seems like it was just a small seed. It seems like, and this is my favorite point, that it was just a crucifixion. It, it, just, it just seems like that's, that's all it was. But the point to be made is that not everything appears to be as it seems. Please, please, please liken this to your story. I don't know every situation in here, uh, but it might seem this and that and the other to you. But that's because you don't see God working behind you, on the side of you. You don't realize that he is surrounding you. We overcome evil by a humble letting go of what feels like losing. Christianity is probably the only religion in the world that teaches us from the very cross how to win by losing. It's always a hard sell, especially for folks who are into strength, domination, winning, and enforcing conclusions. I think what we have to do is we have to learn uh, a life of, of, of Jesus. What does a life of Jesus look like? Uh, and what you see is sometimes what looks like losing is actually winning. Uh, we, we have to learn that the kingdom of self has to submit to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and it's not uh, our life that makes sense of life. It's the life of Jesus that makes sense of life. And if the kingdom of me is first, I'll never be able to make sense of the things that uh, are not here yet, the promises that I feel like are unfulfilled. I can never make sense of 2020 if the kingdom of me is out front. It always has to be the kingdom of Jesus. But that's tricky because that means I got to let Jesus be in control. And man, sometimes I don't want to let Jesus be in control because I like to know things, because I like to control things. I like to make sure that I can manage, man, not only my expectation, but the outcome is best 
that I can. But then you realize you can't please God without faith. And what's faith? Faith, it's, it's a weird combination. You ready? It's this. It's kind of what I feel every time I have to host or preach. It's, it's queasiness. Mixed with a certain amount of tension together. So what do we like to do? We like to manage the queasiness and the tension. Pastor Chris had a message years ago and he described, and it's, it's just etched in my head. He was going through his neighborhood and there was a little girl on a bike with training wheels and a life jacket and a helmet and goggles and she was blowing a whistle. It's funny, it's funny because it's us when it comes to how we try and manage pain and how we try and manage shortcomings and how we try and manage what we feel like is the failed mission of God in our lives. God's saying, nope, I'm always on time. My timing is perfect. I work in unconventional ways. If it made sense to you, you would be God. It doesn't make sense to you. That's why he alone is God. He does things that no one can explain. Not even the smartest individuals. You can't get all the intellectuals in one room and figure out the ways in which God moves and ministers. The reality is he does it in his timing, in his way. That's why I love what he said to King Ahab. He says, listen, it's not gonna rain till I said it. it's gonna rain. Till I give command for the dude to respond once again to my word. And as God was faithful to men and women of scripture, God is faithful to you and I today. And I'm done with this. I was reading in um, the 16th chapter of John, and I have to tell you, it, it just caught me. I, I started laughing. Like, this is crazy. If you read John 16, just read a lot of Bible this week. You're going to need it. John 16. I began to read John 16 like, whoa, Jesus, whoa, you're coming off strong. What's he doing? He's, he's telling the disciples what's about ready to happen like what he's about to do. He's on his way to the crucifixion. He's on his way to experience by himself the powers of, uh, of this world, the powers that are satanic, the powers that are dark. And he's about to do something only that he can do. And he's getting his disciples ready. And he says, you're gonna suffer. Like you're gonna, you're gonna be scattered. You're gonna, you're gonna weep and you're gonna wail. The world's gonna laugh and rejoice, but you who are followers of Jesus, man, it's, you're gonna weep your well. I'm reading that, I'm like, man, it's so crazy. I'm just, I'm shocked by, uh, I got shocked that I was shocked at the fact that they're suffering. I got shocked that I got shocked that sometimes it feels like it's, it seems like things aren't always being played out like they should be played out. And reading through John 16, you get to the end and, I think it's, it's now one of my favorite verses and I have quite a few of them. But in John 16, verse 33, it says, I have said these things to you because he said a few things. He's, he's talked about, which is, is crucial. I, I, I must go so the paraclete, the helper can come. You're not gonna be alone. I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. So stop like asking the wrong questions on that. Why God, why? That's a whole nother message. So sermon why there is tribulation. Jesus, you're gonna have tribulation, but I love this, take heart, I've overcome the world. Take heart, I've overcome the world. It's a silly example, but I love, I love football. 
and I got hooked on like this silly fancy football thing long time ago and I know it's probably idolatry and I'm, I'm working on it uh, but I sit in my chair and watch football and uh, what I love to be honest is when my TV and my phone aren't on the same time to where my watching experience is delayed. I love it when I hear quack, quack, that's my phone. I flip it over and it says that C.D. Lamb made a you know 40 yard touchdown, which that doesn't happen. Uh, but if it did, I have him on my team, but it hasn't happened yet. Hear me now. But I know it's gonna happen because I just got updated that it's, it's unbelievable, it's, it's 40 yards. He didn't get touched. No one got hurt on the Cowboys. Everyone's fine. I, I get that I get that message, and then I love sitting in the chair, knowing my son didn't get the same message, and I watch for the next nine seconds or so. What I know is gonna happen hasn't happened yet. My son's still like, what is gonna happen? I already know. Because the update was faster than my viewing experience. And so I sit there not with fear and anticipation and angst. I sit there like, man, this is gonna happen. This is awesome. That's a silly analogy compared to what God has done with us, but it does make the point. You win because Jesus already won. So you can go through hardship and difficulty and you can go through pain and you can go through frustration and you can still keep kindness about you, and you can still keep grace about you, and you can still keep this, this measure of great faith about you. And you don't have to be a runaway Christian. You don't have to be a suicidal, woe is me, laying under a tree, Lord, I just want my life to be over Christian, but you can be one that's full of faith, that's bringing salvation to starving households, that's bringing uh, the word of the Lord to people who are hopeless, it's bringing healing balm. It says there was a healing balm in Gilead that brings and it makes the whole wounded heart whole. You can be that for people. Why? Because Jesus allows you and I to be part of this redeeming story. The God that works from the shadows, that shadow work is all about the invisible activity of heaven that we don't see. We just have to fully trust that it's working, that he's working, and he knows every detail of our life. Every promise of God has an appointed time. Provisions of God can be delivered in unconventional ways. The power of God can be subtle and silent. And the last point, as we looked at the example of Jesus, failure with Jesus is never final. Your failure is never final. Why? Because of Jesus. Father, thank you for who you are today. Lord, thank you that you are a God who, who knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. Lord, I'm grateful that you know every story. You know every, every name. Lord, you know every man seemingly delayed dream. Uh, you know heartaches. You know people... Uh, in their state of mind right now, whether full of faith or the opposite, hopeless. Father, thank you that you have everything that's needed, Lord, to fulfill your word. And I just declare this. I know there's people in here today, and this is, this is for all of us, that your promise, it is coming to being. And uh, not only from what the word says, but the individual promises that you reveal to people, there is an appointed time for it. And 
like Abraham and Sarah Vole, I'm asking that you would just bring just great encouragement to, to lives, to hearts, to families, to homes in Jesus' name. Lord, today I pray that this audience would leave full of the confidence of God. Lord, I thank you that you work in ways, the people that are just at, at the, the end of themselves. 2020 has been uh, a, a tricky year for some. There has been job loss. There has been uh, the, the, the quality of life for some diminished and uh, threatened. But God, I'm so, 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 so confident. If you can send ravens to a prophet in the middle of nowhere to feed, Lord, you can do whatever you want to do uh, to work miracles in households, even in unconventional ways. So if that's you, friends, uh, be encouraged that God is for you. Uh, he is working on your behalf. Today, God, thank you that uh, your, your word, it, it, it speaks to every one of us. If you could just do this, just put your hand on your heart this morning. Lord, thank you that you speak to us in ways that make perfect sense. And today I'm asking that uh, even today, you would continue just to, to whisper your words of life and hope into every person. Lord, let our heart not be calloused with disappointment. Let it not be calloused or uh, let it not uh, have that default that we feel like if there's an impossibility, somehow it, it's failure. No, but I pray, God, that you would remove any layers of hardness in our heart, any layers that would uh, contradict your word. I pray a soft heart, man, a heart that would be full of your grace and full of uh, your truth today. Lord, we thank you for the greatness of God in, in, in the land here of the living. Lord, we thank you that you work miracles. Come on, in the name of Jesus. And last but not least, come on, I want to pray for this. Uh, just with your eyes closed, head bowed. If, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, uh, my, my, my prayer and my plea is don't leave this room without knowing uh, that Jesus is for you. You know, maybe you've been in uh, a relationship outside of like uh, the, the one that's right with God. You've either, you, you identify maybe with this kind of runaway prophet, like you just want to just give up. Um, but you're encouraged today and you say, no, uh, as for me and my life, I want to follow Jesus the rest of my life. If that's you, can you just raise your hand? I'd just love to, to pray with you. Awesome. See that hand? See that hand? Thank you.